let me say hello first. I'm Christina von Hodenberg. I'm the director of the German Historical Institute. And we have been running our lecture series online and via Zoom for a while. Tonight, I have the pleasure of welcoming Hannah Skoda from Oxford, a medievalist historian. She will in a minute be introduced by one of our research fellows, Markus Mayer, who's himself a medievalist. So just to say a little bit about Markus Mayer, who will introduce Hannah. He is a research fellow at the German Historical Institute since last year. He's done his PhD with the universities of Münster in Germany and Durham in Britain. And he works on late medieval cities and their visual culture in Europe. And he also is the mastermind behind the GHIL's blog, which we started in 2020 and which is going from strength to strength if you are tempted to look at our blog on our website. Okay, so with this, I'm going to hand over to Marcus and look forward to today's lecture. Uh, well, thank you very much for this very kind introduction, though, of course, I am uh, by no means the main event of tonight, because that is uh, Hannah Skoda, who joins us from St. John's College, Oxford, where she is a research fellow in medieval history, having uh, published widely and on a quite variety of topics, particularly a monograph on violence in 13th and 14th century France with Oxford University Press, which also I think is related to two articles, at least two, uh, two that I could find, one on domestic violence and another on student violence, another student uh, behavior topic is another interest of Hannah's, and more recently edited a volume on legalism and law that uh, you could also obtain via Oxford University Press if you wanted. And today she will talk to us about a new project, an ongoing project on nostalgia in the late medieval period. And I'm looking forward to what Hannah has to say, particularly, of course, because I'm working on the same period. And I do hope that you will enjoy the talk as well. I look forward to Hannah's talk and I uh, will talk to the rest of you later. Anna, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for the invitation. I wish I could meet you all in person, but it's very nice, nevertheless, to see everybody here. The former age rebukes the new. The good times are all gone away. In olden days, everyone acted well without deceit or envy. There, once upon a time, fortune and grace reigned amongst lords. Once upon a time, merchants bought and sold with good faith. In my childhood, the kingdom was rich and as full as an egg. Things aren't what they used to be. How I long for the good times again. So literary greats like Chaucer, Gower, Dante and Boccaccio, to figures like Philippe de Maizière and Geoffroy Latour-Landry, to chroniclers, to preachers, reacted to the profound changes of the 14th century with a nostalgic yearning for the past. This was a century of cataclysmic change. Demographic catastrophe from plague was magnified by terrible famine. The first half of the 14th century saw what's often labeled a mini ice age. Once plague had struck mid-century, catastrophic harvest failures continued to bedevil any recovery. So these were terrifying decades. And it's not surprising that contemporaries sought explanations in the wrath of God. Famine, of course, struck those at the bottom of society most terribly. And the plague also socially differentiated, despite the familiar to us and disingenuous rhetoric of we're all in it together, the poor were disproportionately affected. 
The result was labour shortages, which in turn meant that survivors could begin to demand better conditions. The conditions of serfdom were less and less tenable as lords struggled to secure the labour necessary to run their estates. Social mobility certainly resulted both in reality and in the fears of those who saw their social hierarchies apparently threatened. Life seemed to exist on shifting sands. But even without mass death, this was a century of other dramatic changes. Commercialization with, with its attendant practices of lending at interest and monetary fluctuation seemed to intensify. Polities continued to develop rapidly, often through warfare which ravaged the countryside and very considerably increased the burden of taxation. Cities were ever more prominent and so on. So historians, of course, continue to debate the structural impact of these changes. But my point is that many contemporaries saw a world which looked in the words of Bishop Brinton as though it was being turned, quote, upside down. And one of the ways in which they responded to these great changes was, I argue, in a nostalgic mode. So what is nostalgia? The OED defines it as a sentimental longing for or regretful memory of a period of the past. Why is nostalgia worth studying? First, it's worth studying in its own right. It's an immensely powerful emotive force. It's one that uses yearning for an imagined past to stimulate often dramatic change in the future. And it's a topic which resonates even more strongly now than when I began this project. I began it pre-Brexit, pre-Trump, pre-pandemic. We're now living through a period of cataclysmic change. And we can see for ourselves the varieties of nostalgia which this generates. So my research on nostalgia forms part of a wider monograph project on nostalgia in the long 14th century, focusing on England, France and Italy. And the project is structured around five ideals. The first is a pastoral ideal. The idea here is to examine ways in which a pastoral idyll intensified as a response to the perceived intensification of urbanization. These sort of aesthetic qualities also shine through in a chivalric ideal. And in this chapter, I'll be looking at the ways in which chivalry was seen through particularly nostalgic lenses in the long 14th century. And we're perhaps particularly acutely aware at the moment of the political expressions and consequences of nostalgia. The emotive appeal to past golden ages to project reactionary or sometimes more radical agendas. And this will form another chapter of the book. There's a strikingly radical nostalgia which suffuses many late medieval revolts. But I'm also interested in the kind of nostalgia which underpins the subtler appeals of political petitions and political discussion more generally. And I think a particular ethics of nostalgia underpins all these themes. Commentators weren't just pessimistically grumbling that the old days had been better, but they were using these observations to critique the present in often subversive and radical ways. So I'm really happy to explain further what I'm up to in these chapters. But today I'd like to focus on the two central chapters of the book, if I ever actually get around to writing it up, which will be on economic and social nostalgia. And I'm hoping to convince you that nostalgia was indeed a prominent and powerful response to deep structural change and that its effects could be radical. 
and that the ethical dimension of nostalgia expressed across different contexts could powerfully critique and articulate ideals of community. I'll start by thinking about economic nostalgia. Economic nostalgia, I think, generated critiques of apparently newfangled commercial practices. And these critiques were expressed in a sort of nostalgic mode for a time when transactions had apparently been underpinned by trust, when greed was not the driving force, when exorbitant interest taking was not practiced and prices and coins corresponded to some kind of intrinsic value. It doesn't matter that this is delusional. The point is that this is the way in which this critique is articulated. The poet Deschamps described the good old days as sans mal penser tricherie ou midi, so without any evil thinking, no trickery, no lies. And of course, these perceived economic shifts were intertwined with reactions to their social consequences. In 1389, the French chronicler and lyric poet Jean Froissart wrote an amusing little poem called the Didou Florin. So the little poem about the florin, and I'll use it to introduce my theme. Froissart imagines that a little coin at the bottom of his pocket can speak to him. And the poet then explores the analogy between money and artistic production. But he also takes the opportunity to pass judgment on contemporary economic ethics. So the poem begins with a diatribe against the little piece of metal. Change et paradis à l'argent, l'ail frotté, estrié, lavé et bien appareillé. So change is a kind of paradise to money. Change rubs and scrubs it, it washes it and it cleans it up. On the one hand, the lines seem to praise money. The coin, once lavé bien appareillé, so once it's been washed and cleaned up, can apparently be given new life. And according to the coin itself, the future therefore looks bright and exciting. Je m'en vois conquer pays, châteaux, terres et offices. I'm going to go off and conquer lands and castles and so on. But the poem lends itself to far more uncomfortable readings. It explores the ways in which money can make completely immoral profits whilst disguising their origins, abstracting them from the filth in which they're born and passing them off as honourable transactions. The whole thing is underpinned by a sense of commercial hypocrisy. Argent est un droit enchanteur, un lierre et un barateur. So money is an enchanter, it's a thief, it's a fraudster. Froissart incorporates an implicit reference to Suetonius's history, citing a passage about the son of the Emperor Vespasian, who apparently complained about the filthiness of money from the toilet tax. This was because urine was taxed in second century Rome. And his father, Vespasian, responded to him by saying that money was money, whatever its origins, and he should set aside his snobbery. This is the origin of the phrase pecunia non olet. So, you know, money doesn't stink. And Froissart evokes this reference and this scatological dimension with his comment that l'argent me pue, money does stink. Autant vaudrait au jugement estrand de chien que marque d'argent. So at the judgment, dog turd will be as valuable as a piece of money. So the lines do more than just evoke the lowly origins of money. They problematize a sense that money can just be a signifier of something else. They problematize this sense that the coin can be completely abstracted from what it's deemed to represent. If the coin smells of dog turd, according to Froissart, it's precisely because it is at once an abstraction and the turd itself. 
is all very well to present money as just the signifier at several removes of vile commercial practices. But money is in fact inseparable from corrupt gain and earthly greed and desire. So this tension and the hypocrisy underpinning it evoke three strands which lie at the heart of nostalgic critiques of economic mores in the long 14th century. The first strand is flux. The poet explains that the coin loves continuous change and instability. In fact, it's precisely change which sustains it. And as we'll see, the idea that commercialization and economic change provoked excessive instability produced nostalgia for a period when the pace of change felt more manageable and more reasonable. Money turns the world upside down. Fait des droits venir les torts et des torts les droits au retour. Il n'est chose qu'argent ne fasse et ne défasse et ne refasse. So it makes rights into wrongs and it makes wrongs into rights and back into wrongs again. There is nothing that money can't do and then undo and then redo. And it flows through one's fingers like liquid. Il s'est tantôt de moi emblé, me défuit et je le chasse. Lorsque je l'ai pris, il pourchasse comme il soit mes mains. So as soon as I've got it, it flees away from me. And as soon as I try to grab it, it, it runs out of my hands. The second strand is that of monetization. So this is the idea that everything can have a monetary value, including moral absolutes which should not be relativized or commercialized. So theoretically, Froissart's little coin is supposed to be nothing more than a signifier of value. But the tension between abstraction and materiality, which lies at the heart of the poem, becomes a way to reveal money disturbingly penetrating everything. Froissart tells us that everyone wants to caress this little coin. She attracts everyone's attention. And this sense of monetization, the reduction of fundamental social values to transactions, lay, I think, at the heart of economic nostalgia. There is nothing money cannot do. The third strand concerns the ways in which the little coin can signify things. We have flux, monetization, and signifying. It has been washed and polished so much in the poem as to obscure its origins. Its lowly and base past has been hidden away and viewers can be deceived by its appearance of honesty. Froissart thus suggests that money is all about deception, hypocrisy, trickery. And here also nostalgia features. Aristotle teaches us that coins are there to balance and to measure commercial transactions. But the message of the poet here is that money is in fact scrubbed to remove the traces of these transactions and disrupt this kind of equilibrium. Coins, and by extension commerce, are emblematic of deception. So these three strands of economic critique, flux, monetization, signifying, produced a nostalgia for a period of stability, of reliable moral values and of trust. And this nostalgia was expressed across a range of moral treatises, stories, poems, legislation, and so on. And these critiques sort of crystallized around various discussions, just price, usury, the devaluation of the currency. 
all this may sound very reactionary. Nostalgia is conservatism with a small c. Liana Farber in her wonderful book on medieval commerce mentions in passing that the 14th century saw a kind of reactionary nostalgia against commercialization. And Roger Ladd's book on anti-mercantilism in the later Middle Ages makes a similar point. This sense of the conservatism of economic nostalgia might seem to be reinforced by the popularity of motifs about post-lapsarian decline. So lots of writers in the 14th century from preachers to poets like Chaucer constructed a narrative of the seven ages in order to critique the present by associating it with an inevitable decline. So Chaucer's poem, The Former Age, does precisely this. It describes an age without money, without weapons, without greed and without commerce. Men and women apparently worked the land, they shared their goods and they lived happily and communally. With the succession of the ages, barter emerged and eventually money to regulate more complex transactions. Weapons were invented, war followed, and eventually humanity found itself in its present, as in 14th century, state of misery and war. In the former age, however, no coin knew man which was false or true. No ship it carved the waves green and blue, as in there was, you know, there was no commerce across the sea, no merchant fetched out landish wares for the walls folk knew, no towers high or walls round and square. What should it have availed to worry? There lay no profit, there was no wealth, no riches. But cursed was the time, I dare well say, that men first did her sweaty business to grub up metal lurking in darkness and in the rivers first gems sought. Alas, then sprung up all the cursedness covetousness that first our sorrow brought. So there's a very obvious nostalgia here, at least superficially, and the poem on the face of it presents a very conservative vision of commercialization as catastrophe. Chaucer's point though is of course more complex. On the one hand, he's inspired by genealogies of a nostalgic golden age inspired by Ovid and Virgil, but at the same time he uses this trope of the golden age not in fact condemn all mercantile activity, but to present a vision of the past which throws into relief the trickery and deceit of present day commerce, rather than all commerce per se. And in fact, it's really rare to find late medieval writers completely condemning commercialization. Why would they? We might turn to Boccaccio's golden age tinged vision in the De Canaries, this is an amazing text where he uses the accounts of Genoese merchants who've been visiting the Canary Islands. And he describes what sounds like a Stone Age society with families living at subsistence level, without weapons, without war, and certainly without money. Whether or not it's a realistic description is kind of beside the point. What interested Boccaccio was a sort of Rousseau-esque, you know, avant la lettre, kind of noble savage sort of idea. And Boccaccio describes this golden age society and uses this nostalgia to critique the form of mercantilism which he saw in 14th century Italy. In this heuristic exercise, Boccaccio does not reject mercantilism and commercialization, despite the presentation of a pre-monetary society. Instead, 
he uses this nostalgia to criticize the hypocrisy and the deception of the commercialism of his contemporaries and to gesture towards alternative modes of commerce. We find a similar message in the sermons of San Bernardino of Siena. He fulminated against contemporary mores by referring to a past without deception or ruse. But his sermons were all unequivocally characterized by a sense of the communal importance of commerce. Strikingly, he commented on Lorenzetti's famous fresco cycle in Siena, which you can see here, of good and bad government. And on the images of good government, Bernardino commented that, when I look at the images of commerce, I see dances, I see houses being repaired, I see vineyards, and thus the world lives in peace and harmony. So nostalgia is not necessarily sort of anti-progressive and completely reactionary. Rather, it's a way to frame visions of economic community. And these visions of community were rather different in France, in Italy, and in England. In very general terms, economic nostalgia in Italy tended to focus on the avarice underpinning contemporary commerce. It obsessed about the loss of cortesia, of generosity and honesty. It was a way of pointing the finger at contemporary elites and delineating a particular vision of true nobility. In England, economic nostalgia was rather differently oriented. Here, we see a sharp tension between two different kinds of economic nostalgia. On the one hand, we find statutes attempting to regulate price, which appeared to be driven by nostalgia for a period when salaries and prices were more predictable and clearly ordered. On the other hand, moralists and poets tended to focus on the exploitation of the poor and the economic rapacity of those who governed them. So in place of the nostalgia, which seemed to sort of focus on a particular social group, as in Italy, economic nostalgia in England was more focused on the bonds of reciprocity, which were supposed to underpin economic and political community. In France, again, really general terms, economic nostalgia tended to centre on the question of the devaluation of the currency. Obviously, currency fluctuation took place in England and Italy also, but it was particularly marked and drew particular attention in France. Nostalgia for a period of currency stability, the good old coin of the saintly Louis IX, provided a very rich language to articulate visions of political community centred on the relationship between the king and his people. So we're going to think briefly about the idea of flux in this kind of economic nostalgia. Il n'a riche au monde qui dit j'abonde. There is not a rich man in the world who says that he's got enough. This 14th century proverb expresses a truism of capitalism. That is to say that capitalism is based on a dialectic of abundance and scarcity. And by the 14th century, this dialectic produced a series of nostalgic tensions as society came face to face with cataclysmic change, not only the growth of commercialization, but also price, wage, and monetary fluctuations provoked by war, famine, and epidemic. What followed was a feeling of extreme flux and changeability. Nothing seemed stable. 
and nothing was stable. Such is the theme of a poem by Chaucer called Lack of Steadfastness. Apologies for the way I'm reading the Middle English, by the way. I thought it would be quicker and more useful if I just read it in a sort of vague modern English way. So I hope it all makes sense. Sometime the world was so steadfast and stable that man's word was obligation. And now it is so false and deceivable, deceptive, that word and deed, as in conclusion, be nothing like, for turned upside down is all this world for mead, for money and willfulness, that all is lost for lack of steadfastness. Perhaps it's unsurprising that economic nostalgia should so often turn on questions of just price. A little poem called The Simony seems to address this question head on. Bread and ale is the dearer and ever the better cheap for that. But this was not simply a question of inflation. The poem goes on, and sometime were chapmen, merchants, that truly bought and sold. Once upon a time there were chapmen that truly bought and sold. And now is the assize broken. Chaffer, or trade, was wanted, was wont to be maintained with truth. As John Baldwin has shown, just price theory is not just an argument for absolute value. Rather, it's a concept which integrates the logic of the market and which depends fundamentally on the consent of both parties in the transaction. So what really threatened just price was not the inflated prices themselves, but fraud and coercion. So it's striking then that deception, ruse and untrustworthiness lie at the heart of most nostalgic critiques of the period. John Gower is paradigmatic. In his Le Miroir de l'Homme, he accepts the utility of commerce whilst berating deception and trickery. And these are presented as moral faults which corrupted just price. Qu'est-ce que je vous dirai plus? What more can I say? Mais que le siècle est trop confus de tuer marchands et spécial. So that the times have been turned upside down by merchants. Mais sans de cette et sans envie, elle tend du vieil ancestrie, l'or il faisait bonnement, chacun droit de sa partie, loyal fur sans tricherie, la revente et l'archappement. So in the olden days, people acted without deceit, without covetousness, they behaved honestly, each person did their part, people were trustworthy, they weren't trying to trick you, they got on with their buying and their selling. Jadis, quand les marchands parlois de vingt et cent, leur abandois, de richesse et de suffisance, lors de leur propre bien vivoir, et loyalement se contenoir sans faire un nulli de décevance. So, once upon a time, when merchants spoke about quantities, there was plenty of wealth and there was a sense of sufficiency. They lived with their own goods, they contented themselves in a trustworthy way and they weren't trying to trick people. He laments a lost epoch of honest merchants when prices were mutually agreed and when trust formed the basis for market transactions. So medieval sermons picked up on many of the same tropes. One preacher tells us that truth is turned into treachery, chaste love into lechery, play and solace to villainy and holidays, holy days to gluttony. Another a macaronic sermon, that is a sermon using both Latin and the vernacular, which is a really interesting enigmatic puzzle. Anyway, another macaronic sermon used a musical metaphor 
to lament the more honest and harmonious transactions of the past. Sicut fuit in corde, ita eloquebantur. As it was in their hearts, so they spoke. There was no deception in words and acts. And as people cared about their own things, so they bought and sold. This was a glad and a useful music. Istafwit glad mistressy et utilis. French sermons turned on very similar themes. But this kind of critique took a rather different inflection in Italy. In Italy, people tended to lament a period of generosity or largesse in contrast to the avarice and meanness of present times, as opposed to this contrast north of the Alps between honesty and deception. So this contrast between modern meanness and largesse in the past was the subject of sermons by Jacobo Passavanti in the 1350s. He was concerned not so much by excessive wealth as by the loss of generosity and humility. So we turn now to think about monetization. If trustworthiness was undermined, so too were moral values more generally. Economic nostalgia tended to center on the idea that everything was now monetized. The English poem, Sir Penny, thematizes this. Everything is measured in monetary terms with completely ridiculous results. The simony, which we looked at earlier, also known as on the evil times of Edward III, expresses a similar idea. Since everything is monetized, there is little space for true moral values. The poet writes, the covetousness and simony have the world to will. And since everything seemed to be assigned a monetary quantifiable value, in contrast with a past of true morality, contemporary literature often evoked a kind of world upside down. An English sermon argued that, I quote, in comparison that it was sometime, virtue's moral be gone. It is not as it was, the old holiness is gone from them. According to the sermon, moral values had been reduced to monetary values with catastrophic consequences for the moral well-being of the community. In the 1300s, the moralist Nicholas de Boson had picked up on this same theme in, in satirical vein, claiming that charity had been sent away by covetees, covetousness. Everywhere, apparently, monetization meant effectively that moral values had been reduced to commodities. The various professions were reprimanded in the same vein. The clergy were apparently motivated only by the desire for money in contrast with the past. Whether they had ever been motivated, I'm not making a judgment about people's motivations, but this is the way in which the nostalgia, nostalgic vision is articulated. Lawyers were not as they had been and tried to put a price on reason. And according to one sermon, for both Christian courts and secular courts, go for gold and thefts, for truth is forsaken. This sense of commoditization drew its force from the contrast with an imagined past of absolute moral values. But this isn't just about conservatism. This is about visions of community. Once again in Italy, this kind of nostalgia took a rather particular form notably targeting wealthy merchants who aspired to the same kind of cultural capital as aristocrats by blood. So merchants were criticized for their lack of true courtesia. 
They may well be rich, but unlike their predecessors, according to this kind of nostalgic rhetoric, they'd failed to learn that not everything can be bought, that not everything can be assigned a price. Generosity and free hospitality apparently belonged to another age. And once again, it's not just about conservatism, but a really rather effective polemic to attack the mores of a powerful group of merchants. Notably, Paolo Cataldo, in his merchant manual called the Libro di Buoni Costume, cites a popular proverb, cortesia di bocca se vale poca costa. So cortesia, true courtesy and good values are worth a lot, but cost little. True nobility, true moral values, true integrity, true generosity. These are qualities, says this proverb, which can be neither bought nor sold. Which brings us to the third strand of economic nostalgia, which is about the coinage and signifying. Once one moves beyond bartering, money is obviously the mediator, which balances two sides in a transaction. Its function is to signify and to balance. But very often moral literature gestured towards a past of equilibrium, now disturbed and disrupted by avarice and the duplicity of signifiers, as in the duplicity of the coins. The preacher, John de Murfield, declared that the just weights and measures being evil weighed and filled as tapsters do that fill the measure with froth, i.e. people pulling pints and filling up with froth and not filling people's tankards properly. As much as they withdraw of the measure, so much they draw to them of the wrath of God. In France in particular, this economic nostalgia cited an age when a coin was deemed to signify value in a trustworthy way. So the frequent devaluation of the currency which punctuated the later 13th and 14th centuries engendered rampant inflation and terrible suffering. As is well known, devaluation provoked much unrest, which often turned to violence. And it's even more striking, I think, that this unrest was often articulated through a nostalgia for a period of monetary stability when coins predictably and reliably signified value. Contemporary sermons evoked these same themes. So for example, Jean Courtecuisse, preacher of the 1400s, who was implicated in the reforming Kaboshian movement in Paris, exploited a very powerful sort of rhetoric of the laudatio temporis acti, as in praise of former times, by referring to a golden age during the reign of Charles V, who died in 1380. And he said, J'ai aucune fois pensé par moi si le roi Charles, revenant maintenant en vie, comme sera-t-il émerveillé et ébahi de voir la très misérable face et la grande immutation qui est au royaume, de voir la grande distraction et dissipation des biens et des richesses qu'il vous laissa. So I've often thought that if King Charles, your father, were now to come back to life, how horrified and shocked he would be to see the very miserable face of the kingdom and the great change which has been brought about, to see the great dissipation and waste of goods and wealth of what he left behind. The preacher and early economic theorist Nicolas Orem pulled together these strands. He was the Bishop of Lisieux um, and the counsellor of Charles V. 
In his sermons, he complained that the desire for earthly wealth preoccupied his contemporaries even more than the desire for heavenly salvation. And he underlined the point that money is not enough to measure what really matters. In his amazing treatise, The De Moneta, which is an incredible text, he maintained that money belongs to the whole community. It should not be devalued, it should not be debased um, according to the whim of the king for his personal gain. And this is because the money does not belong to the king. The text contains a pretty excoriating critique of contemporary monetary policy, described as falsitas vilissima et decepcio fraudulentia. So it's the, you know, the worst kind of fraud and, and deceptive lying. The rhetoric was really founded on a nostalgia for the past when coins were valuable because they belonged to the whole community. His narrative is one of decline and degeneration. So I'm translating the quote that you've got here. So free hearts have degenerated so much in the people of France that they willingly enslave themselves. If the royal offspring has degenerated so far from pristine virtue, the kingdom is doubtless lost. Economic nostalgia then wasn't just about prices and it wasn't just about money. It was about a particular vision of community inflected slightly differently in the three regions I've been looking at, but based around ideas of trustworthiness, generosity, accountability by rulers and the immeasurability of true morality. I'd like to turn now to the ways in which this nostalgia could be turned to even more excoriating critiques of social structures themselves. So think about social nostalgia now. Current estimates suggest that the combined effects of famine and epidemic disease ravaged more than 50% of the population, obviously with regional variations. And it's well known that population replacement rates took a long time to recover. So it's not then a great leap to imagine that the resultant gaps in society, not least the disproportionate levels of mortality amongst labouring strata of society, would present opportunities for social mobility. Whether or not past hierarchies had really been more stable, they certainly looked to have been so. And referencing this ideal was a very effective way to critique the present. These social critiques were intertwined with the thrust of more explicitly economic nostalgia. This was all about a vision of community built on trust and stability. So my sources here are sermons, moral treatises, legislation, as well as, again, the great 14th century names from Dante to Boccaccio, Chaucer to Gower, Deschamps, Christine de Pizan. We'll begin in England. Preachers readily moved from the personal to the collective, from the micro to the macro in the moral schema they constructed around moralizing nostalgia. And they often built their sermons around the contrast between past and present as a really effective way to ram a polemical point home. And I'm particularly struck by the enormous emphasis on pride and deceit in these late 14th century English sermons. And by the integration of pride as a moral failing in their nostalgic critiques. In this configuration, pride becomes linked to social flux and then by extension to the lack of trustworthiness 
which seemed to underpin the changes they were seeing. So many of these sermons focused on pride as the embodiment of what was going wrong. They were harking back to a time when people apparently knew their place and did not allow misplaced pride to set them above themselves. What's yearned for is a time when people knew their place in society and this apparently engendered a sense of trust and friendship. Bishop Brinton commented that there is no trust or worldly stability and he tied his economic critique to the multiplication of social classes. He added the merchant class as a fourth estate to his sermons. And he referred to an organological metaphor to examine and lament the growing complexity and apparent dysfunction of society. In one of his sermons in the British Library, those of lower social status are accused of a whole wealth of sins and most heinously, quote, of using novelties, of standing against men of higher estate and of kissing each other on the mouth. And the sermon goes on to tell us that in the past, people knew their place. This sense of social flux was embodied in nostalgic critiques of a number of sins, treachery, lechery, villainy, gluttony, even the behavior of children. With one preacher riffing on Deuteronomy um, chapter 21 to claim that, quote, in the old law, children who were rebellious and disobedient to their fathers or mothers were punished by them. Nowadays, parents don't know how to discipline their children and everywhere is discord. Most powerful and most persistent in these sermons was a longing for a past focused on what people wore. Again and again, the preachers wax lyrical about the inappropriateness of modern clothing. And they seem to hanker for a past generation when people dressed more modestly and they dressed according to their station. Clothing proved a really powerful motif to evoke a more austere and a more stable past. As the English sermons present it, clothing is all about pride and it's all about unacceptable social mobility. If clothing is a sign, inappropriate clothing is deceitful and it marks the breakdown of trust and social order. Fashion and a simpler past appear to go hand in hand. So I thought I'd quote at length from MS additional 41321, which is in the British Library to make the point. So it's a late 14th century, early 15th century sermon. Now the common people have also come into the sin of pride. For now a wretched knave who works with the plough and the cart, once upon a time wore a white kirtle and a russet gown, which would have been quite adequate for him. But now he will insist on a fresh doublet costing five shillings or more and a costly gown with bag sleeves hanging down to his knees. This pride his master will be forced to pay for when he pays his wages. For those men who used to accept 10 or 12 shillings in the past, now insist on 20 or 30 and a livery. Rippon, another preacher on the same theme wrote, quote, the garments I say of the proud and those who are once noble are now divided as spoil along with their bed quilts amongst grooms and maidservants and prostitutes, and others still worse and prouder than formerly. And Rippon goes on to blame this for national disaster in the Hundred Years' War, which is a bit of a leap, but anyway. And whilst rooted in contemporary events, Rippon also explicitly maps his nostalgic comments about clothing onto a much longer standing set of tropes about the ages of the world now rather nicely transposed to produce a kind of potted history of clothing. 
Before the fall, he explains, Adam and Eve went naked. After sin, they took on animal skins. And now I'm quoting. Later, as their pride grew, men used garments made of wool. Thirdly, through the more ample nourishing of carnal delight, they used garments made from plants of the earth, namely of linen. And fourthly, silken garments, which are fashioned from the entrails of worms. All of which kinds of raiments are now rather for vain glory and worldly pomp than for the necessity of nature, diversely decorated, as it were, in an infinite variety of ways. If preachers engaged a kind of sumptuary nostalgia to evoke a pastime when people were less proud and knew their place, so too did legislation on the subject. And it's by setting the sermons and the legislation side by side that the nostalgic quality of the latter is thrown into relief. The preamble to the very famous English sumptuary legislation of 1363 railed against, I quote, the outrageous and excessive apparel of diverse people against their estate and degree. The legislation is organized as a list of gradated social statuses, prescribing the appropriate expenditure for each. So for example, grooms, as well servants of lords, as they of mysteries and artifices shall be served and drink once a day of flesh or of fish and the remnant of other victuals as of milk, butter and cheese and other such victuals according to their estate. And they shall not have clothes for their vesture or hosing. Sorry, they shall, whereof the whole cloth shall not exceed two marks. So a nostalgia for a time when people dressed appropriately implicitly underpins the whole thing. The late 14th century chronicler Knighton worried that, quote, the variety of the common people in their dress was so great that it was impossible to distinguish the rich from the poor. So this is nostalgia driven by flux, but it was also nostalgia driven by a particular conception of community. Bromyard used the image of the harp to stress the resultant discordance. And of course, literary texts picked up on the sense that the community was apparently now discordant. The trust and the reliability which underpinned a stable hierarchy were now lost and lamented. The nostalgia expressed by preachers must also, I think, be acknowledged as potentially radical. So, for example, the preacher Bromyard declaimed, all are descended from the same first parents. True glory does not depend on the origin or beginning or from which anything proceeds, but upon its own condition. Bromyard's intention was certainly not radical, as we've seen, but it's not a great leap to see that this kind of golden age nostalgia could take a very radical turn. I'm not going to do this now because we're running out of time, but this is the thrust of what I want to say about revolts when thinking about political nostalgia. So I've not got very long left, but I'd like now to draw back in some comparative material using sumptuary concerns as my lens. Sumptuary law took strikingly different forms in Italy and France, and this has puzzled historians. And I think nostalgic visions of communities offer some keys. So we'll start briefly by traveling as Chaucer himself did to Italy. Chaucer, of course, drew heavily on classical sources. And in the former age, which we talked about, referenced amongst others, Horace's pastoral idyll. Unsurprisingly, nostalgia's classical inflection was particularly obvious in Italy. 
where political circumstances also seem to have produced a kind of nostalgia wave rather earlier in the century. In Canto 16 of Dante's Inferno, Jacopo Rusticucci asks Dante's character whether, quote, courtesy and valour abide in our city as they once did. Dante's response is typically excoriating on the loss of noble behaviour within the city. In the 1360s, Boccaccio was commissioned by the city of Florence to deliver commentaries, a series of public lectures on Dante's Commedia. And Boccaccio took the opportunity, sort of half a century later, to intensify Dante's nostalgic critiques of the present in a thoroughly overdetermined passage on <laughs> the things that modern men do not do. But Boccaccio is nostalgic for Dante's times, the days which Dante himself had so heavily critiqued in looking back to a former age then. Anyway, for both Dante and Boccaccio, what has been lost is courtesy, courtesia, this form of knightly generosity, good manners, decency, that was to underpin the well-being of the political community. And I'd like to acknowledge my debt to Karen Olson's book on courtesy lost. In lamenting the loss of courtesia, Boccaccio very tellingly goes on to inveigh against contemporary clothing. And he's kind of riffing off really interesting sumptuary legislation in Italy too. He says, men wear shoes with long pointed toes as if they plan to use them to hook women and drag them off for their pleasure. Their hoods make them look like baboons and apparently their outfits are so short they leave nothing to the imagination. In contrast, says Boccaccio, the Romans managed to conquer the entire world whilst wearing clothes long enough to conceal their modesty. And he says, once upon a time, young men were ashamed of their dishonourable hidden thoughts. Nowadays, they go around showing things that even animals would gladly conceal. He goes on to rant about the youths of today. Their behaviour is disparaged only if it might not do them some good and be pleasing to others. And he continues, at the risk of dedicating too much time to the subject, and then goes on to like a really, really lengthy rant, comparing the modest clothing of the past with these pointy shoes and belts worn trendily around the buttocks. Anyway, for Boccaccio, clothing is not a trivial issue. It's even a matter of political identity and national pride. He says, it used to be the Italians who made the laws, set the standards and established the customs and new ways of life for the entire world. And now he says, Italians are only interested in copying newfangled fashions from elsewhere. So this, I think, gives us a really interesting way to read Italian sumptuary law. English sumptuary law was structured so as to speak, to appeal to different ranks. Italian sumptuary law was rarely structured in such a way. Basically, it just applied the same to everybody about what you are and aren't allowed to wear. And its main obsession is with excess. So, for example, my favourite example, in 1360 in Florence, the father of the infant Gualberto Morelli was charged with dressing his little boy in a multicoloured romper with silver buttons and gold ribbons. It sounds really, really cute, but anyway, he was prosecuted for doing this. And it wasn't just anxiety about conspicuous consumption. It was rooted in a nostalgic vision of social and political community. There's a real focus on the loss of courtesia. It's another way of worrying about the rise of new men, a sense that the stable aristocracies of the past were increasingly under threat from those made fat from the profits of trade and commerce. But it's not just anxiety about personnel, it's anxiety about values under threat. 
the storyteller Sacchetti picks up on the same theme. And he says, although formerly men never altered the fashion of their dress, it seemeth to me that the whole world is united nowadays in having but little firmness of mind. And we turn now, finally, briefly to France. Sumptuary legislation in France was strikingly different from that either in England or in Italy. In France, the vast majority of 14th century legislation was very explicitly aimed at the nobility. This was legislation designed to encourage the upper echelons of society to rediscover and rekindle their knightly ethos, their responsibilities to their dependents, their courage in arms, their spiritual well-being. And this makes sense, I think, in the particular context of 14th century France, ravaged by the Hundred Years' War, acutely conscious of deaths in battle, desolation of the countryside, burden of taxation. And it's a royal polity whose king was brought up with an overtly knightly ethos. So most famous are the sumptuary statutes of Philip the Fair from 1279 and 1294. And this legislation takes aim very clearly at the nobility. I quote, dukes, counts and barons owning land worth 6,000 pounds or more may only have four suits of clothes made for them each year. Knights owning land worth 3,000 pounds or more or bannered knights can possess three suits of clothes per year, but no more and so on. So it's evoking a vision, a particular vision of political community led by men whose aristocratic birth was to be mirrored in their respectable but not superfluous behaviour. So to conclude, the pandemic that we're facing right now is not bubonic plague, thank God, but it has nevertheless overturned our lives in unimaginable ways. It's brought grief, challenges, but also fresh insights. And speaking personally, I can already feel a wave of nostalgia hitting for the innocent sense of stability we felt before all this hit. So 14th century nostalgia in response to, amongst other things, global pandemic is I think a deeply resonant topic. Svetlana Boim in a wonderful book on nostalgia argued that nostalgia is quote, coeval with modernity I hope I've convinced you that it isn't, but it's striking that the 14th century shifts which provoked nostalgia are often taken to signify modernity. Things like flux, social mobility, rapid commercialization, economic fluctuations, rapid political change, and so on. I've tried to show that economic and social nostalgias were not just superficial reactionary tropes, but ways of articulating particular visions of community. Guillaume de Machaut, the poet, wrote typically that, quote, car c'est le plus grand regret que j'ai que du bon temps que nous avons perdu. So my greatest regret are for the good times that we have lost. Somewhat selfishly, I might comment that his loss is my gain because I find nostalgia endlessly fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hannah. I will start with a round of virtual applause. I hope others can join me. Thank you very much for this fascinating venture into 14th century nostalgia.